Well, good morning again to Redemption Church, and it is crazy to think that again, this is this is really the last, we, we do, we pray, we pray that this last time that we are having to do this in the kind of soundstage studio hub kind of environment, but it has been a huge blessing as well. I love to say that everything teaches. In fact, uh, you're going to hear me say that probably later this morning, but this whole last year teaches. This environment for, I think, even us as leaders and pastors and, and everything like that, it teaches. For you as followers of Jesus, it teaches, and our heart is always to want to be able to take in what it is Jesus wants to teach us. So that from that, we can live more like him, rely on him more, have kind of his ultimate kingdom perspective. And that's what we're going through in the gospel of Luke. And in particular to the section we're in this morning, Luke chapter 13, it's all about that. It's about kind of unlearning old ways and embracing new ways or unlearning religious ideas and embracing kingdom values and models. And so it's a challenge. It really pushes all of us to do that. And yet I am grateful for the fact that Jesus loves us enough to make that kind of investment to keep working in our lives and tinkering so that from that it's less about us and it's more about him and his vision and dream for the world that will literally bless the nations. And so that's what this heart is all about today. That's what we're looking at here in Luke. And so right now this morning, I want to go ahead and just have us pray uh, to get ready for today. I think especially today because we're going to like hit a lot of things really quick that we all know, but we almost want to treat like our marching orders for life. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right into it. And so let's go ahead and do this together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you are incredibly patient with us, but you also put attention that says, but you know what? Go further, go farther, go faster. I know you can do it. And so you call us to follow you in such a way that it's not about ease or comfort. In fact, it may demand a great deal of things from us. But in the end, you also promise to reward And so I pray that we will learn your lessons, that we will embrace your heart, that we will advance your kingdom, and that it won't be about our comforts in this world, but rather us leveraging our lives for your message in this world so that others in this world might come to know you. So we look to you, Jesus. We certainly love you and thank you in your good and kind name. Amen. So... Every time I teach through a book of the Bible, uh, it's interesting because I realize I'm always learning something every time. Like there's things I know and then there's things I forget and then there's things where I go, wow, I've just never thought about that before. And for the Gospel of Luke, this is very interesting to me because I'm a big synoptic Gospels guy. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are kind of my favorite section of the Bible and then Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, another big favorite section of mine, right? But one of the things that has stood out to me in Luke that I've never seen before is how much ink is spilled talking about the religious leaders that were against Jesus. And I thought this was kind of weird. Like when it started to click in, I'm like, here's Luke and he's writing to his friend Theophilus about, hey, here's what the Christian life looks like. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. Here are the things that we're supposed to live out and do. And then there's a ton of ground covered in these conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees or Sadducees or the lawyers or whatever. And I'm like, why? Like Luke had limited finite paper. Wouldn't it have been better for him to say, you know what, then Jesus healed this woman and I'm going to tell her story for a minute now. She went back to her village and reached people and everything else, but you don't see that kind of thing or how Jesus raised this kid from the dead and then he went back with his mother here and things happened. It was really cool. Like Luke doesn't do that as much as he keeps writing about the conflict between these two groups, Jesus and religion. And I'm like, I just, I don't get it. Why so much energy? And then I realized, like I was saying a minute ago, everything teaches. 
everything teaches. And so there's something in this where it's like Luke as a writer, the Holy Spirit working in him says, I want you to go ahead and talk about this a lot. Because when I think about this, I think all the stories about religion and its opposition, its pride, its love of law, its disregard for embracing a new way of thinking, its hypocrisy, its judgment, its failure, all of those are there to teach us as Christians And I think it's to teach us as Christians this simple idea that we are all tempted to backslide into religion. There's a lot of information about religion in the Gospels to warn us, to say, listen, you're going to be tempted to do the same thing. You're going to want to fall victim to the same traps. You want to embrace the same love of law over love of people or over love of gospel. And I've seen it throughout my life as a Christian. There is these temptation moments where you start to become a legalist or a moralist or just judgmental, or everything gets politicized, or we start to treat things like a meritocracy where you merit and earn things in this life, or you merit or earn things even in the church. And if you don't live up to the standard, then somehow there's a punishment for you that's less about how grace rescued you and more about how you failed in an expectation. And from that, there should be some consequence that you have to suffer. We're all tempted to do it, right? Every one of us. We're tempted to the same fruitless, loveless, lost, and forsaken spirit as the Pharisees or Sadducees, but we might just do it in the name of Jesus. Because what I've realized over the course of time is we're tempted in two ways. We're tempted either to follow the world in very worldly ways, or even to fight the world in very worldly ways to be ungodly in both kinds of frameworks. And so from that, all the more we need to be reminded of what Jesus is trying to get at in this chapter, which is his followers must think different. Now we've been talking about this chapter and how this is uh, the structure that we've talked about, right? So literally it's a crossing effect. That's what it means in Greek. And so we've learned that Jesus says religion must think different. Religious, religion must repent of the ways that it views things and views things in a new context. And so it must repent of fruitlessness and lovelessness and its lostness and its forsakenness. But as we have learned, repentance is from something and then also to something. So they needed to repent from these things, but repent to a new kind of kingdom. This vision that Jesus has for the world that changes everything. That's where religion needs to go. That's where his audience needs to pay attention. And that's what Jesus wants to teach. And here's why. In his world, the Jewish nation, they had a vision of the kingdom right? So they were longing for their Messiah and their Messiah would come as a conquering king that brings in this violent kingdom that wipes out all the bad guys, wipes out the pagans, the sinners, the untouchables, the unlovelies, the unwanteds, and then sets Israel up as the supreme nation over all other nations. And so the only kind of Messiah that they were really going to be interested in was the kind that was aggressive, demanding, and commanding. That's the guy they want. That's the guy they're longing for. That's what they're praying about. But then Jesus rolls in and he starts pushing a kingdom that not only is unlike the kingdom that the Israelites desired, but frankly, he's pushing a kingdom that's unlike the vision of the world as far as how you get things done. Right? So in the world, it's the strong, it's the leaders, it's the forceful to get things accomplished. But now Jesus is rolling in and he's trying to talk about a very different kind of kingdom. And it's so different, it's going to be hard. 
It's so different, it's going to look like a narrow way when wider ways are more feasible and more functional to the way the world works. But that's exactly what we learned last week, right? Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, work hard, agonize to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom for many will try to enter, but they will fail. See, not only is this challenging, this idea of the narrow door, which we will finally define this morning what narrow door living is all about, but it's not just that it's challenging, but that it challenges. It challenges the very assumptions of how you get stuff done in the world. And that's the thing I think is the biggest challenge about the message of Jesus. I think it's very easy to look at this and be like, that's not real. That's not executable. That's not going to see things accomplished. That's too much of being a pushover, being silly, being crazy, being too opposite the world to be of any functional good. And Jesus is like, right, that's why you need to rethink things. You need to see the world differently. You need to see my vision for the world differently because I am not coming to vanquish my foes. I am coming to reach my foes. And that is the vision that you and I, friends, we need to embrace. That our calling in the world, the reason we still have our boots planted on the ground on this mission field is not so we can convert the mission field to a battlefield, but rather we can see outsiders become insiders. We can see enemies become friends. We can see those who have been pagan turn to being into people who praise God. That we can be ambassadors of a message of peace between God and humanity in such a way that Jesus says, even if it costs you your life to see others have life in Christ, it is worth it and I will reward that. That is a very different kind of kingdom. It is weird. I'm going to be completely frank. The kingdom that Jesus pushes in the gospels is odd. It is strange. It is bizarre. It is a, just a phenomenon you look at and you go, there's no part about this that should work in the real tangible world. And you know what that odd, weird, strange thing is called in the Bible? Holiness. Holiness. See, holiness simply means uncommon. It means set apart or sanctified. Here, here's the problem with holiness. I had a friend of mine recently ask me about this. He says, I've been hearing your definition on holiness, but holiness, doesn't it simply mean, again, uncommon? And I go, it does. But we have to measure against what, right? That's just kind of an open-ended descriptor right there, right? So it's ambiguous. If something is holy, it's being compared to something else. And here's what's so important about this, right? This is where it's a little bit tricky. Uh, when Jesus is dealing with religion, religion thinks it's holy. And here's a little secret. It was. The religion of Jesus's day was uncommon. It was set apart, right? It was set apart from the world in such a way that it adhered to law and stayed separated from everybody else. It was so separate, in fact, it looked at the rest of the world and said, they're going to hell. The rest of the world, they're sinners. The rest of the world, they don't know God like we know God. That's how holy the environment was that Jesus was dealing with. But then Jesus rolls in with a different variant of holiness, and his variant isn't stay separated from the world. His version of holiness is very simple. Doing things in unworldly ways. It's being so uncommon, so other, that the world looks and says, whoa, that's not how we do business, right? We're used to force and might and strength and all of these factors. And, and you're bringing something altogether different. Here's why I go back to this idea of holiness by definition is being uncommon in that you love, in mercy and justness. 
See, holiness does mean uncommon, but the function of holiness is uncommon by authentically loving people in a spirit of mercy and a spirit of justness. The justness is willing to forgo our own comfort for the sake of others, and we do it in mercy, and that is the essence of love. And so the religious leaders had an unholy holiness, right? And they stood against the world because of that. But then Jesus is bringing in a holy holiness that stands for the world by giving himself to it in unworldly ways, loving the unlovely in very strange ways, caring for the broken, caring for the ugly, caring for your enemy who doesn't want your good and yet you want good for them. That is holiness. That is uncommonness playing out in the world. And for the world, it's gonna seem reckless For religion, sometimes it seems like you're selling out or it's silly or you're not being committed to the truth, right? It's like to love in this model, you have to have faith in God that God has called you to love in this way. That kind of reckless abandon to making that type of investment into those who may be unwilling or uninterested or frankly might even get angry because of it. But that is the new ethic that Jesus is bringing into the table. It is this ethic of the kingdom, See, for religion, they've failed. They've lost perspective on the kingdom. So now Jesus in the gospel of Luke is trying to give new perspective, accurate perspective, repentant perspective, where they rethink it and do it different. And so from this, he says, here's what the kingdom's like. And he gives two illustrations to the kingdom at the center of chapter 13. Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like and how can I illustrate it? He says, it's like a teeny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree and the birds make their nests in its branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like yeast that a woman used to make bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Now we hear that or read that and we go, yes, that's so good. That's so picturesque. That's so perfect. I love those parables. I love those stories. But the original audience that's listening to Jesus, here's what he says. And they're like, you gotta be kidding me. That's the kingdom. Jesus never become a sales pitch guy. Do not market anything. That is the worst vision we have ever heard for the kingdom. That is not a kingdom that anyone would want. So let me try to break this down for you because we're 2000 years removed. We don't live in that culture. We don't understand the dynamics of these stories, both of a man in agriculture and a woman that's trying to put together a meal in some capacity, right? We hear this and we go, oh, okay. The kingdom's like a tree. And we think about that, we go over to the TV here, and we tend to think of really grand, beautiful, awesome things because we love the kingdom of Christ. We believe in what Jesus is doing. This is an important thing for the world. So we picture it like this. It's gonna be beautiful, grand, big, strong, tenacious, but Jesus does not say the kingdom's like a cedar or like a redwood. He says it's like a mustard tree and therefore behold your tree, right? That is what the average Jew listening to the story hears when Jesus says it. And then as to the other story, we think about, oh, well, big loaf of bread, beautiful, twisted, knotted, awesome, amazing. That looks so good. But what Jesus actually communicated was more to this. Pretty appetizing, isn't it, right? Looks good, yummy, yummy, right? So what's this all about, right? Well, the original audience would hear his words and think, you just described some things that are troubling that would not be appealing to the average Israelite, right? 
And so he's disrupting their visions of the kingdom because again, they want a powerful kingdom. They want a strong kingdom with a strong king and now he's pitching something that's altogether different. So it's holy in contrast to what they anticipated, right? Again, he's just flipping the script on them. So let's break it out a little bit really quick here. The mustard tree. Uh, Why is this so disruptive to the way they pictured it? Well, here's the first thing you have to understand about a mustard tree. It's a highly invasive plant. Palestinian farmers or people that grew gardens would never put a mustard tree in their garden. It would take everything over. It would just wipe it out. So farmers did not do this. Gardeners were not into this at all. So that's the first problem. The second problem we actually see there that the mustard tree welcomes the birds, right? So if you have a garden, I bet you have a net over your garden. And there's a reason you have a net. You don't want the birds. So why then would Jesus pitch a kingdom that has an invasive species that can take everything else over and invites the very things you don't want because they're going to wipe out the rest of your garden? That's the way they're starting to hear this. And then Jesus talks about the yeast that goes inside the dough and it gets all out of control, right? Even there in the Old Testament, when you read about yeast as an illustration, it's an illustration of sin or it's an illustration of something impure or unclean. This is why at Pentecost, they go around, or uh, Passover rather, they go around and collect all the yeast out of the house to symbolize we've removed all of the impurity from the house. And also in the Old Testament, the idea of birds were connected to the Gentiles, the pagans, or whatever. So Jesus is illustrating his kingdom in ways that for a Jewish listener, they're like, we want no part of that. Why would we want an invasive thing? Why would we want outsider birds? Why would we want this sense of impurity? This is all backwards to our anticipation. See, and and if you even add to it the fact that the Israelites, they were thinking when their kingdom came, it would come with devastating force. He would ride out of heaven and wipe out everybody. And now Jesus is like, oh, well, it starts like this little seed and just grows over the course of time. And as it grows, outsiders come in. And as it's full and big and lush, it's actually kind of gangly and crazy looking. And it's going to look odd to outside eyes. It's going to look something altogether different than what the world would anticipate. And Jesus says, that's my kingdom. My kingdom just is so utterly different. It's not going to look attractive maybe to religion, but it's very attractive to outsiders and unwanteds and uncleans. The people who are the stuff of birds and yeast, that will be my kingdom. And so it's a kingdom that is unconventional and scandalous. It's a kingdom filled with people that are messy and marred and even irreverent looking at times, right? But that is the kingdom of true holiness. That is the narrow door and the true way. In fact, that's the interesting thing to me. When we get out of the gospel of Luke and we look at the gospel of Matthew, we get a sense of bearing on what the narrow door is all about, right? This narrow concept way. But see, in Luke, it's different. He puts it at the center of a chapter dealing with the need for religion to repent and embrace something new. In the Gospel of Matthew, he does us a huge favor. He outlines what the kingdom looks like and then kind of finalizes that message with the illustration of the door. And so this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I love about this, and this is where we're getting ready to turn out of Matthew cha- or Luke chapter 13 and into Matthew chapter 5 through 7. What I love about this is he's like saying, you really want to make a difference? 
Do you really want to be somebody special? Do you want to be an individual who makes an investment in the world in such a way that one day, again, Jesus slides out the chair and says, please sit down. Thank you for what you did. You served me by serving the world that you were in. High fives, fist bumps, you name it. Like that's the scene that Jesus promises for those who serve in this capacity. So what does that look like? What does narrow door living look like? So, Matthew chapter 5, start of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, See happiness in humility and sadness, in your strength being contained, in a passion for doing right by having mercy displayed. Have your purity from the inside. Forgive in such a way that even when people want to persecute you, you know what? You take it with joy. You forge peace in a peaceless world. He says, bring flavor and preservation as salt. Bring warmth and illumination as light. Being people genuinely committed to good so that people would see your God and glorify him in heaven. Seek a righteousness greater than the righteousness of religion. Stow your resentment. Make broken relationships right as much as you can. Seek respect and dignity in sexuality and marriage. Keep your promises. Turn the other cheek, he says. Give twice what's demanded of you. Go two miles when somebody requires you to go one. Love those who hate you, who disagree with you, who disrespect you. Aid by loving them and aid in such a way where you bless them when they curse you, you pray for them when they abuse you, you do good to them when they hate you. That is a narrow way. Give to the poor, pray to your father, fast in a hunger for God. Prove you love God more than money by investing your money into God's priorities. Don't worry about the problems of life. Worry about advancing the kingdom above all else. Figure out how to care for others more than judge them. Since frankly, we're all sort of self-righteous hypocrites anyway. We all need mercy, so we should give it. We should ask and seek and knock for God to help us do all of these things because what it's ultimately about is the golden rule of whatever you would want others to do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus says all of that through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and then he capstones it and seals it with this, enter by the narrow gate. So often we kind of remove this verse from the context of the chapter, but it's there for a reason. What he's saying is the wide way is do it your way. Or the wide way is blow off the Sermon on the Mount. The wide way is I want religion, but I don't want the sacrifice of the kingdom. Like that's the wide way. But, but the narrow way is saying everything Jesus has said from chapter five to chapter seven is what we do. That's the kingdom way. That's the narrow way. That's the kingdom door that we are to live out. It's an otherworldly message for a world that desperately needs it. And then after saying that, it says, hey, here's all the stuff. Enter by the narrow door. He says, this is the difference between good and bad fruit, true and false following, and solid and weak foundations. So he is confronting, but he's also inspiring us to something different. Because he's saying, listen, if you want to just play patty cake with the religion for the rest of your life, feel free to do that. You totally can, right? Just make it about you, want what you want, love what you like, you know, do your own thing and everything else. But if you want to make a true, powerful difference, there's the marching orders just from there all the way to there, five to seven. 
And I think the core of this, the heart of what this is, if you want to take it seriously, the baseline is what we see back in Luke chapter 13. When he said in verse 30, note this, someone who seems least important now will be the greatest then. And someone who is greatest now will be the least important then. See, that is to be our constant day in, day out disposition. I'm not trying to be the greatest, the best, the boldest. I'm trying to be the least, the servant of all. Jesus says, that's the stuff of my kingdom, right? That's the stuff of being a true follower. That's the backwardness of what it is he advances. And we can hear this and say, right, but it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work in today's world. It won't work in the United States. We want success more than faithfulness. But remember what Jesus also said last week? It's from doing it this way that we see people come from all over the world, from the east, the west, the north, and the south to take their place in the kingdom of God. The question is not, does it work? The question will always be, do you want to be a part of what Jesus does to make it work? Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, throughout the gospel of Luke, you challenge our modern sensibilities. You challenge how we get things done, right? Our world loves kind of the captains of industry, the makers of destiny, but you seem to value uh, the, the, the idea that we are servants of all, that we forgo our rights and privileges and comforts, and instead we embrace your kingdom, your desires, your gospel, that we would love people in such a radical and reckless way that sometimes religion could say, oh, is that safe? Is that okay? But I believe our mission is to out-love the world that we live in. We are to out-love people. The world talks about love a lot, Jesus. We know that. But, but we want to out-love in that regard. We want to be truly holy, where it isn't just making statements, but it's making differences. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that especially today as we get ready for communion and And I think about the fact that when you were calling a church to yourself and you were building a community, you said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We would be gate crashers over Satan's sin and death. And we know the way that happens is through life and peace and joy that comes only through obedience to you, through knowing that life is better with you and that life is better with you when we are in obedience to you, when we're living out what it is you've called us to. And so as we prepare our minds and our community, our own personal hearts for remembering what you've done. We also know that you have called us to do something based on what you've done. If we follow you, we model your kingdom and all that we do. And so I pray that as we have this memorial today of your death and resurrection, in that we would also be reminded of our commission and our ministry to be on your mission field as everyday missionaries, helping people to see that life is better with you. So Jesus, we thank you and we love you and your good name. Amen.